So what Chris C.B. essentially said to us was that there was a key slice of the discipleship pie missing in historical church life for a lot of churches. And he pointed out that we're not just an intellectual people, which is often talked about, who need healthy intellectual foundations in our life to be like Jesus. Nor are we just a physical people who need to work on our physical health to be healthy in life. Nor, as is often the main emphasis in church life, are we just a spiritual people who need to develop spiritual help in our walks with God. Although we need all of those things, interlinked with them is a big slice of us. We are designed to be emotional people, a people who feel hurt, rejection, joy, sadness, anger, confusion, who need to learn to develop a healthy understanding and response to these feelings as well to be fully healthy. And he pointed out so well that our lack of emphasis and understanding on maturing in this area of life is often the blockage to enabling God to achieve his full work in our lives and church communities. Emotional immaturity prevents us growing in and knowing the freedom and security God wants to pour out on our lives. It can be the stumbling block to truly becoming like Jesus, who, as our example, modelled what it was like to be a well-rounded, emotional individual. So we see Jesus let emotions out when it's required. He doesn't just bottle them up. He grieves when Lazarus dies, shows anger at the temple and the way it's being used, cries in the Garden of Gethsemane, joyfully feasts with his followers on the beach. But we also see him not respond out of negative, destructive emotions in tough situations as well. He maintains a posture of true love when confronted with hatred, doesn't he? Falsehood, bad teaching, and even an unjust death on the cross. He doesn't cry out of the injustice of that. He responds with just the depth of a father's love. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And through his life, he displayed a life that was constantly full of the fruit of the Spirit, didn't he? Peace, patience, love kindness, goodness, and joy. He is the model of emotional maturity. And as a result of a lack of emotional maturity in our lives, it can often be the root of a lot of pain. The church claims one thing, to follow Christ's example and display the gospel, but lives out another. Where rather than living in the likeness of Christ, what we're really doing is we're living out of unchanged behaviours that come from unchecked anger, jealousy, guilt, shame, fears, hurt, wrong motives that we've not yet to come to understand and allow God to touch. And it's because of this important piece of the pie, this place of emotional health in the lives of the church that we didn't want to go on building freedom any further without looking at this area of growth and discipleship, without getting a foundational understanding of it. So for the next seven weeks, we're going to introduce seven excellent principles of growing into emotional health and maturity, outlined in Peter Scazzaro's book, The Emotionally Healthy Church. Now, we've got some other books at the back, which are the ones that we, they're probably better for take-home reading, but the seven principles we're going to look at are the seven that I'll follow through in here. We'd really love you to pick one of those up. Um, I think there's a, 
is there a cost associated with them? Seven pounds if you want to, um, if you want to buy those uh, at the back. Really, it really is worth doing. Really is worth doing. And today I'm going to introduce principle skill one, and then we're going to have some ministry time. I hope, um, as long as I don't have any more technical difficulties. And the reason is because it's our firm belief as a leadership team that as we open up our hearts and actively engage in this series, God wants to do a deeper and more lasting work in our lives than we've yet felt him do. I just want to want a starting point with this. On a scale of 1 to 10, I want you just to turn to somebody next to you. You don't have to uh, pour out your entire life to them at this point. But just to get a gauge, for, to help you get an a gauge of where you're at with this, I want you to just turn to them. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being rubbish, 10 being outstanding and perfect, how good are you at letting emotions, feelings out when needed? How good are you recognising when you've had a negative emotion or a difficult response to something? How good are you at asking why you've had that reaction? Just two, two seconds, turn to somebody else and just give yourself, give yourself a bit of a score. Where do you, where do you gauge on it? If it helps, me and Guy just agreed that we were tens for all of them. We just, you know, really model men. So wherever your starting point, I'm sure that you notice there's, there's room for just growth, isn't there, in this area? There's room for improvement. I know where I put myself on those charts. There's definitely room for improvement. And in terms of developing and being discipled in this area, the first principle that Mr. Scazzaro comes up with is this principle one look beneath the surface and this morning I just want to simply go through this with you I want to start with a story now two things happened to me on my move over to Liverpool which were actually life-altering for me one was that I stepped out of church leadership for a while and secondly I went through a discipleship group a bit like Chris CB described last week with with Matt Hatch a number of you will know him, where a number of leaders basically got the chance to ask me a load of uh, exploring questions about my life and my past. And both of these gave me the opportunity to think and reflect on my life in a way that I'd never given space to previously. And as I had space and was asked a load of questions by others, two very, very difficult things started to become apparent to me. One, there had been a strong pattern in my life of me responding in hurt and defense and anger at times to people, particularly when I was receiving some negative feedback. Secondly, as I honestly looked at myself, I realized that there had been a really unhealthy balance in my life on time spent in pursuing church leadership over other key roles in my life that God had given me, like being a good husband, being a good father, being a good employee. And as I went a bit deeper through asking why this had been the case and why had I been blind to it for so long, I realized some fairly rotten stuff about myself. I realized that I was a little bit more broken by my life thus far than I thought. That some past situations had left like a, a scar through my being that came out whenever I felt like people were telling me that I wasn't good enough. Which caused me to react 
were to feel absolutely devastated and hide away a little bit, like a failure. Secondly, I realized that many of my motives for wanting church leadership, the driving force behind me doing lots of the things that I've been doing, had actually been a driving force for desire for notoriety, for acclaim, for power, for success. And church had just been my vessel for these things. Church leadership had become my measure of what would make my life meaningful or not. And it would be a failure without that in my life. And honestly, part of me had become deeply afraid of losing church leadership and status as a result. And actually, to some extent, this has probably been displayed as being more important to me than my wife, my family, and even my relationship with Jesus. I wanted my ministry to be a success with some slight competition with the other leaders in my church. Not for God, but for Matt. Even though I would have denied this wholeheartedly to you had you asked me when I was nailed in the last church I was in. You know, I have never been a drug addict, an alcoholic. I've never murdered anybody. I've never had that powerful conversion story. But when I started to grasp just a little of the true state of my heart in this time, even though I've been a Christian since I was 17, I was suddenly confronted with the fact that I was broken and sinful in a new way. And initially this glimpse below the surface was terrifying. And I actually always thought that I was pretty good at this emotional stuff. I I knew that Chris and Beard had a hard time in the street, but I was like, no, I'm I'm an athlete, I'll be fine. Like, who joked that I'm the woman in my relationship because I'm so emotional? (laughs) But it was like I was looking honestly at my reflection for the first time. But then something happened to me in the days that followed that secured me and took away all my fear and anxiety and started to give me freedom and go on the journey of freedom from some of these things in a way that I hadn't known before. And what happened was this, and it's a simple realisation, but it's deeply powerful. I realised that even though I had not fully recognised the extent of some of my frailty until 13 years after becoming a Christian, Jesus had always known this about me. And this hadn't ever put him off me. He had still died for me. He had still called me to be part of his family. He had still put his Holy Spirit inside me, walked with me, blessed my hand in the workplace, in my marriage, and used me in in ministry to encourage others, all in spite of myself being weaker and more self-centered than I had ever formerly understood. And the more I started to understand the muck and yuck in my heart, the more I started to grasp God's patient, fatherly, unbreakable love for me. It's like they went hand in hand, muckier Matt, more patient father. And this caused a rejoicing in me like I hadn't felt since the day I fell to my knees and became a Christian. Because as my understanding of my sin and how he had loved me regardless grew, so did my understanding of his grace, love and forgiveness of me. And the glory and security of the cross shone bright in my life anew. He loved me even though 
I am that weak and rubbish. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Do you know, and, and as a result of going under the surface, I was secured. And my worship for him grew again. And this, for me, started to break the back of needing to achieve and glorify my name in the church for my life to have meaning. Because as he started to build in me, I felt genuine humility come into my heart. Rather than just knowing what I should say, I started to really see myself a little bit more as I truly was. He built in me more genuine desire to see him glorified because actually he really was the great one, not Matt Ashworth. I know this is obvious to you, by the way, but this was revelation to me. And I realized I already had the great prize in life. It was already there, given to me in fullness. Jesus' love, forgiveness, and presence. He was the great prize shining bright in my mind. And actually, some of the power of being told I was not good enough was broken as well. Of course I'm not good enough. Of course I'm not. I see myself as I am. But he loves me and he uses me regardless. You know, through this process, God took a really dry, barren part of my life and started to grow an abundance of his fruit in me. But one fruit now lasts above all others. Some of that other stuff has actually faded a little bit. It's not that my motives are suddenly all good and I never react bag badly to the feeling of told I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm really sorry, I'm not that guy. I'm still working on it. I have to say sorry all the time to people, far too much, at least about five times a day, I think I'm apologizing for Becky. The lasting fruit is an understanding that the gospel work of Jesus gives me security not to be perfect. I don't have to hide from or pretend that I am better than I am. Because every time I find some truth or a mistake or failing or some dirt in my heart, all that happens is his love for me shines brighter. And I realize his willingness to use me in life and bless me is in spite of the truth of my heart. Does that make sense to you? Why share this? Well, it's a genuine example. I feel quite vulnerable actually sharing that with you. But it's a genuine example in my life of where applying the first principle of emotional health in Peter Scazzaro's, this Peter Scazzaro highlights for us, this look beneath the work surface. And his principle is this. You need to know how to look below the surface to develop true emotional health in your life like Jesus displayed. You know, Scazzy loves a, an iceberg picture like this. Can you see it fully? I don't know. Because it's a really helpful illustration of how we tick as human beings. Our outward behavior, what is visible to others and ourselves, the tiny bit of iceberg we see at the surface here is the tiny bit of a surface. That's what we see, what we display to others. But in reality, just like an iceberg, the majority of what makes up who we are is not visible to others. It's not seen by the naked eye. We have a whole lot of experience, beliefs, desires, fears that make up. Jim, Barb, other people, <laughs> me. The whole person is both the seen and the unseen. But more than that, what is seen is dictated and comes from what is not seen. Let me just explain 
and I, I'm not going to like this because it's going to come up big. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Genuinely, let me explain. Were this spider in front of me now, I'm struggling even with it up as a picture, but you would see this. You would see me instantly freeze, paralysed by fear. My voice would tremble, and I would actually go pale and start to sweat. Some of you might mock me for my lack of manliness. Eventually, when I could take it no more, I would leg it. That's what you would see on the surface. That would be my behaviour. But the reason for this would be that I have a deep-rooted, irrational fear of spiders. And I know exactly where this comes from. My brother and sister, I used to get rid of spiders for them. I I used to be the brave one to go and get these off the walls and and get rid of them. But it was one day, there was a particularly big one. And as I went to reach for it, my brother and sister were watching. It it jumped off the wall at me. And and I went, whoa. And my brother and my sister screamed like you've never... I've never heard my brother do such an effeminate scream, actually. Do you know, blood curdling in the back. And the two things to me, the people in... Know, who I who were in authority essentially over me. They were they're my older siblings, and the shock of that moment stayed with me. It jarred with me, and from then on, I had a fear. That's what's going on under the surface when I see that spider. Let's get rid of it. It's simply the way we were made. Does that make sense? The Bible has some stuff to say about this as well. The Bible calls this inner stuff our heart. In the Bible, the heart is the inside, unseen place. The underwater bit, full of fears and motives that drives our external bit. We see this so clearly in Proverbs 4, 2 to 3. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And we find out in the Bible that, as well as that, unlike our focus on appearance in the Western world, the outside bit, we're focused a bit more on the outside bit, God is really concerned about the inside bit. Really concerned about the heart. We see this when the prophet Samuel goes to find the new king that David leads him to. And Jesse, one of Jesse's sons, King David, doesn't he, in the Old Testament. Do you remember what he said when he looked to the elder son who looked all buff and strong like me? He said, oi, no laughing. He didn't say, oi, no laughing. That's, uh, that's me being defensive because you're telling me I'm not good enough. 1 Samuel 16, 17. He says this. Do not consider his appearance or height. The Lord does not look at the thing, look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks about the heart, uh, the heart. The Lord is concerned about the inside stuff. It's the hidden part that God most values. The ninety percent of make, what makes you tick. The unseen that drives the external. And it's equally the bit that He wants to truly and powerfully transform by His gospel. Not our outward behaviours, but our inner world. The bits and the experiences that drive our behavior. So much of Jesus' ministry, if you look at it, is about getting past the exterior, just what is seen, and getting people to look at the motives and drivers of their heart so that the truth of the gospel can really transform it. Just one more verse for you where this is clear, where this is his focus, would be Luke 6, 43 to 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks.
He wants us to store up good treasures in our hearts and address that which is evil so that an abundance of good is shown at the surface, like Jesus. He wants to sanctify us and purify us as we walk through life with him, secure in his love and work. To do this, as believers, we need to know how to look below the surface in a secure and transformative way. And Schizara gives us four very helpful steps in doing this, built on a biblical basis. Step one is this. Grow an awareness of what you are feeling and doing. Learning to pay attention to what is going on at the surface is the first step to understanding that there might be something wrong or something that needs transformation underneath. Do you know, many people just go through their lives ignoring signals that something is wrong underneath. In my opening story, for a long time, I just not stopped to think about two challenging patterns of behavior that were not in line with Jesus in my life. We don't often stop to truly reflect on the fact that we have been frequently angry, not sleeping, becoming anxious, repeatedly down. We hadn't noticed that most of our actions had been out of grumbling. We were much better at spotting somebody else's inconsistencies than our own. Aware of the specks in others, not the logs in ourselves. You know, I used to work under a boss who became so angry if his view was being challenged. It was a Christian guy of some years, and he honestly could not see and did not have the security to see that this was happening. And if you tried to raise it with him, all he did was put the blame on you and others for it. And the impact was vast on those around him. They were belittled and tired and regularly upset by him. He did not have the skill, or in a modern language, the emotional intelligence to spot problem emotions and behaviours in his life. He hadn't taken the time to look at what was going on, see the cues. Being able to spot places you're behaving out of line with what Jesus wants for you is the first step to honestly looking over the sur- under the surface. Hold on, I didn't respond in love or kindness in that situation. I've been feeling wound up at that personal situation. I've shouted a lot recently. Been watching a lot of telly and not engaging with people. Been hiding in my house, etc., etc., etc. Outward behaviours that we need to be spotting. We need to be skilled log spotters, don't we? Those who can see the inconsistencies in our lives and the places that the gospel needs to touch in you. Step two. Ask the why or what's going on question. For me, the question why is one of the most powerful questions in English language because it takes you from a surface understanding to explore the reasons behind that. It takes you from what's above the surface to what is below the surface. It allows you to diagnose a problem, like in medicine. I don't know why I came up with this example. This man has stomach ache. Why is that? He's just eaten McDonald's for the last year to make a movie about McDonald's being bad for you. Maybe that's the reason. No, the why takes you deeper. And you can use a thousand different why questions. Why am I always uh, in a hurry? Why am I so anxious? Why am I overly concerned that others say I'm okay as a leader or a teacher? Why do I dread this or that meeting or person? Why do I avoid confrontation? Why do I have to immediately return communications? 
Why is my fuse so short to my spouse and my kids? Why can't I cope with rejection? Why am I looking at porn? Why have I stopped doing that kindness? You know, Jesus used the why question all the time to get below the surface. It was part of his discipleship method to get to the heart. Just some of them. Why do you worry about clothes? Matthew 6.28. Why are you so afraid? Matthew 8.26. Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Matthew 9.4. Why do you doubt? Matthew 14.21. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, yet you do not do what I say? It's a killer question, isn't it? Luke 6.46. Why is so powerful? In the example that I gave earlier on, It actually took someone else to ask me the why over and over again until I got some of this. In fact, I don't really remember Matt Hatch saying much else, but why or why is that? Literally, I don't know, when I was talking, why is that, Matt? What's what's that about, Matt? Why why are you doing that, Matt? It sounds like this. Why is that? But this enabled me to diagnose, dig, and go below the surface to things that were formerly unseen for me until it felt clear to me. That's step two. Dead simple. Ask a lot of whys. Step three. Linking the gospel with what you find and the need for emotional health. You know, Tim Keller, I think, does the best summary of the gospel that, uh, than I've ever heard anywhere else, in my opinion. It says this. You are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet you are more accepted than and loved than you ever dared hope. You know, often when we find the answer to our why, when we see why the inconsistency or flaw or hatred that we were formerly unaware of becomes known, it is scary, genuinely. Again, I truly found this when I saw what had been driving the motives of my life. Can I even call myself a Christian? Can be the response. And, you know, Peter Scazzaro's book so helpfully describes this first principle, looking at what's going on underneath the surface, a little bit like stepping out on a tightrope. Whoa, it's really scary, actually. I'm not sure if I'm going to fall off. I feel uncertain about this. What am I finding? But he says, the gospel is like the safety net underneath when you step out on that tightrope that turns this scary situation into an adventure with God. Make sense? Oh, this is still a bit scary. It's still a bit sketchy. But if I stack it, that looks pretty comfy. I'm going to be all right. I can't fall without being okay. I can't find anything in me that Jesus' love hasn't covered and that he hasn't dealt with. I'm going to read you a bit of a story from here. In the years that I have been at New Life Church... I've been helped to embrace the truth about the gospel and to be freed by it. One lovely image that affected me was a woman, as a woman, is of Christ's righteousness being like a glorious wedding dress that makes me utterly gorgeous to God. As I meditated on the truth that because of Christ's sacrifice, I really am holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, the truth of the gospel began to touch me on an emotional level. I remember coming across a passage in Isaiah 62, verse 5, that says, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. My first thought was, 
can this really be true? Does God really love me this passionately? Then I remembered that because of Christ's death, I have become his beloved. The crucifixion is the foundation on which I can base my whole life. I am utterly loved to the core of my being. My God adores me in a personal, emotional sense. The knowledge that I stand before God as his beloved because of Christ has freed me to explore some of the disturbing and dark aspects of who I am. I can face the truth that I have a problem with control. For example, for a problem with control, for example. I can reflect about it honestly, pray about it, and talk to others about it freely. I know that my control issues and all my other sin patterns don't surprise God or threaten my standing with him. He calls me his beloved because of Christ's flawlessness, not mine. Because Christ's righteousness is the foundation of my self-concept, I no longer have to keep up appearances with myself, God, or anyone else. Isn't that an amazing story about the way it freed that woman? Getting this, putting it in the context of the gospel. My favorite quote in this Scazzaro book is this. God has given us the gospel to create a safe environment to look beneath the surface. I don't have to prove that I am lovable or valuable. I don't have to be right all the time. I can be vulnerable and be myself even if others don't accept me. I can take risks and fail. Why? Because God sees and has always seen the 90% of the iceberg hidden below the surface. And he utterly, totally loves me in Christ. That is a good quote. When we find something ugly, untransformed below the surface, we need to dive into this truth and allow the gospel to grow its full potential in our lives and overcome once more, be overcome once more by how much God loves us. Final one. As a man carrying an elephant, I don't think it's a real picture. (laughs) Get rid of the burden of the glittering image. Listen, as we've been working through this, I hope you've seen that going about pretending to be perfect, protecting ourselves from ever really looking beneath the surface, or just being blind and never learning the skills to look deeper, stifles the growth of gospel power in our lives. It can lead to being inadvertently harmful to others, like my former boss, and can be like wearing a heavy burden around our necks of trying to just be perfect all the time. And the gospel frees us from this burden, like we've said. It tells us we don't have to be high achievers, super spiritual in every aspect of our lives, convert a thousand people by the time we're 26. Instead, it simply tells us that we need to be honest before God and man and live openly knowing that we need the grace and forgiveness of God constantly over our lives. And he will work out his power in and through us regardless. Like I've said, already the small steps, and they are small steps, I've taken to understanding this, have lifted burdens from my spirit and left me feeling more in love with Jesus and freer to be the man he's made me to be. This is it. The final part of the first principles is dead simple. is to live with the honest truth that you and I are not perfect. Say a lot of sorries. Remove the burden of expectation that you have to be the most excellent human being to have lived and to be the excellent, most excellent Christian who lived ever. It's just not true. It's just not true. Step one, if you want to grow in emotional health, 
again. Look below the surface. Grow in an awareness of what you're feeling and doing. Ask the why or what's going on question. Link the gospel to what you find. Know that security and safety net. And get rid of the burden of the glittering image. Where do I want to land today? Well, firstly this. I'm going to send steps around to you all this week. And I want you to get active. I really do. And take some time out this week to reflect and apply these steps to areas of your life. Practice it. Because if you're serious about growing the skills to develop emotional health, this cannot just be spoken to you from the front. We can't do this for you. You genuinely need to take time to be led by us on this one and go and apply this to your life, either alone or with somebody you trust. You have to. Without doubt doing this, I guarantee this series will have little or no lasting impact on your life. But if you do, I believe there is something deeper for us to go with Christ that we have not had before, genuinely. Where now? I just want to get Min back up, actually, Mims. I want you to worship before God, just allowing him to minister you, to you, just in this moment. You know, King David is held up as a real example of a heart to God we should have. And he called out in Psalm 139, 24, Oh, search me, God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He was a man who said, look, Lord, go deeper with me. Go deeper into me. I'm not satisfied with surface. I'm with a God who wants to change deep down. And I know you love me. And we want to just spend some time at the outset of this series approaching God like David as our example, just in worship and asking his spirit to search us over these coming weeks and months as a church. Listen, let's just stand. Stand with me. I'm just going to pray. And let's just know that the Lord loves us with that everlasting, securing love. And is inviting us into that relationship of constant transformation and growth into the likeness of his son. By getting to those under places. worship him and if you know you need some ministry over this type time just either make make it known to somebody next to you or put your hand up and we'll get somebody just to bob over and pray with you a little bit as well we just ask the spirit just to come holy spirit would you just come now lord we need your ministry above everyone else's we need your touch beyond anyone else's we need your voice beyond anyone else's Lord, and we just cry out to you, Lord. And say, come. Grow all areas of our life into a maturity like Christ. Lord, use the tool of this preaching series, Lord Jesus, to go deeper with us in a way we've never been before, Lord, we pray. Lord Jesus. Spirit of God, come and move on us now, we pray, just as we lift up your name. In Jesus' name I pray.